You're listening to Pollinate, a podcast on data, design, and the people that bring them to life. Brought to you by Stamen Design. Emotional data viz, modeling with placenta in your hair, and the Dalai Lama and Mickey Mouse ears. These are just a few things that come up in today's episode. I'm Ross Thorne, a cartographer at Stamen and today's host. I chatted with one of Stamen's own about his personal journey and how their team created a visual atlas of emotions for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Please welcome my guest. Eric Rudenbeck, I'm the founder and creative director at Stamen Design. I started the firm 20 years ago, kind of blown away to still be here. Yeah, that's kind of insane. I've, my, my work experience has been um, like so nascent uh, and to think about how and to only just observe these changes too of like how quickly tech changes and then how you have to change as well to be able to survive that long. Um, but also you haven't only been the creative director, like you've held a number of different titles. Yeah. Well, I started the company because I wanted, I wanted the CEO and the creative director to be the same person. Um, that was always because I had a bunch of companies before, some of whom worked and some didn't. And I saw how the CEO got to make all the decisions and they were inevitably not in the service of quality design or of experimentation or any of those things. So I started a company where I could do both of those things. Um, and I did it pretty well for a long number of years. And then, um, you know, we've been through all these different iterations of younger people and older people and projects for, you know, a kind of if I think back on it, a kind of really wild, wildly ranged, wild range of clients from the Dalai Lama to the Smithsonian, um, you know, to, to, to little, to little New York artists. So the, but the, at a certain point, I realized that the business was going to be better run by somebody with a business head. So that's when I brought in Jim Stanley, who's our current, uh, general manager. Um, and it's been really great to sort of hand that pressure to him because it's a lot to carry. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were definitely. times, there's just times when I didn't, in the early days when I just didn't know how I was going to pay people, you know, just that, that kind of very baseline, like, are we going to be able to keep doing this kind of feeling? And that's great to let that go. So like, even before statement, tell me a little bit more about like, about you and your upbringing, you know, and anything that you're comfortable sharing and how kind of statement even got to be like a thought in your head. Um, I grew up in Queens, New York, um, and came to San Francisco in the mid-1990s when Wired Magazine was first getting started, and there was a time of kind of crazy optimism about the web um, when we really all thought that this was, you know, the next new communication paradigm, and it was going to break down all the authority walls, and we were all going to be able to, you know, communicate with each other in a giant global village. Um, and so at, at that time you could get, I was, I was uh, trained as a draftsman and, and has always been interested in kind of mechanical reproduction and printing and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty natural that I would get into desktop publishing, which was uh, just getting, getting started at the time. Um, and the web was just getting started. I mean, I can remember, anyway, I'm gonna sound like an old guy, but I mean, my first, my first server was registered to the domain of .to and it was it was uh it was uh, on a box in my friend Kenji's office underneath his <laughs> desk um 
so yeah no no cloud software none of that stuff everything under ftp and, and linux so you know it was a it was a wild fun time to think that we could actually change the world to think that we could you know create a bright digital future it was like fucking tron or something um uh, yeah so that and uh and and so i did that in san francisco for a little while and then my lucky break was that i was the only person who knew photoshop in san francisco who wasn't at burning man this one labor day weekend so i got a i got a gig at um at wired magazine working alongside um douglas copeland doing some uh image manipulation of a of a of a plague scenario actually it was it was of a the the the, the premise of the article was that a global plague sweeps the world and everybody has to go into little isolation bubbles and the internet helps us solve the virus crisis because we can collaborate <laughs> across labs so so we've come full circle is what yeah. you're saying <laughs> yeah so i gotta i gotta work on something a little more positive now wow years. um you said so like you said that like you all thought that the internet would be like this global village in what ways have you seen it like fulfill that and then in what ways has that totally just been some sort of weird tech pipe dream Well, I mean, you know, the amount of knowledge that we have at our fingertips is just astonishing. I mean, just just the just this idea that you're never lost, the idea that you never lose the recipe, you know, never lose that photograph. That's that's real, um, mm. and it's and it's changed our, it's changed everything. I mean, um, and it, it definitely succeeded in um, allowing people to connect with the other people who are like them. You know, it gave all the weirdos. A chance to connect with one another, but I, I guess what I, what I hadn't fully considered was that it would let not just the good weirdos but the bad weirdos get yeah. together and feel as though. And there's this sort of, you know, when I was when I was a weirdo, I just I, I would I would read like, how long ago was that that you yeah. were a weirdo? <laughs> <laughs> well, before it before I knew that there were lots of others, I would read these research. It was by this guy V Vale out here in San Francisco, and he would write about. Ryan Geisen and William Burroughs and body manipulators and uh, you know these sort of weird digital freaks um, and it was all very sort of subversive and underground and smashed the state but in a sort of anti-patriarchy way not in a let's all storm the capital kind of way um, so I just kind of wasn't anticipating that I mean that literally that, that people could just create their own fictional universes of you know post facts naked ideology and you know ram it all the way through to the top yeah it, it's kind of strange and i guess if you think about it you know like take a step back and think about how every tool can be used for good but it can definitely also be used for 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 uh malevolence um you know just you think about any sort of weapon that's also could be considered a tool um you think about maps as tools too and how like early day redlining, you know, maps seem to have been so romanticized as exploratory and, and some amazing visualizations and um, would, you know, sort of evoke that, that, that thought inside of you, but then also, you know, uh, has, has been used as tools to uh, oppress people. And so it's, it's kind of, I guess it kind of makes sense that the internet as a tool has sort of seen both of those sides of the sword. 
Yeah, well, maps are always an expression of power of some kind. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's that's always that's always true. Um, you know, the person who's making the marks is deciding where they go and is deciding what to put on it and what not to put on it. And I, I think this this idea that that maps are neutral in some way uh, is an idea that I try to push against. That, mm -hmm. um, that it's that it's that it's always about power and that and it's always about an agenda. Um, whatever whatever that agenda is and so this idea that we have to teach people the correct way to read maps seems like a charming artifact of the past yeah interesting so you came to san francisco started working for wired even um i heard through uh jim stanley who you had also mentioned as the principal manager of of stamen uh that s some of the inception of stamen even started before that uh with Something about a modeling career? Jim Stanley telling you about my modeling career? <laughs> he might have he might have briefly mentioned that. Um, and but you know, and it's not totally like a, oh here we got you. Here's this funny story. But he also mentioned that like it is tangentially related to your inception of like how you want to live your career. I guess is that true? Or was it just Jim Stanley like saying, "Here's an embarrassing story about Eric"? Yeah, no, it's not embarrassing. It's just funny. I just didn't, I didn't realize that it had made it out there. Yeah, I got. <laughs> it's a funny story. I was, I got kicked out of architecture school, and I was living in New York City, and um, I was trying to get jobs at restaurants, and I had no idea what I was doing, and I was just a grubby nineteen-year-old. And eventually, somebody gave me this advice. They said, "Listen, it's obvious that you're lying." because you have no you have no experience in the restaurant business because if you did you'd know that the way to go to an interview is you comb your hair out you shower you wear a white shirt and you clean under your fingernails like that was the thing that they were like <laughs> if you don't do that like there's no way like so i was 19 years old and just a grubby sewer rat at the point so what i did so i what i i went and washed my hair got a nice white shirt combed my combed my hair and cleaned under my fingernails and went for a walk from Times Square, where I was living down Broadway, and uh, to um, St. Mark's Place, where the restaurant I was applying for a job as a busboy. And um, I got stopped on the street by somebody who said, hey, do you want to do a shot for Levi's magazine? And I said, sure, yeah, you know, I'd love to. Uh, they took my picture, took my phone number, and then I went down and applied for this busboy job, which was, you know, seven bucks an hour, nine bucks an hour, slinging dishes. And then the next day I got a call that said, we'd love to hire you for this modeling shoot for, for Levi's. Do you want to come up to the Upper East Side, you know, Tuesday afternoon? Um, so I basically uh, got paid 1500 bucks for 15 minutes of like posing in jeans as, as a 19 year old by Richard Abaddon, like one of the world's great living photographers. And so it kind of ruined my work ethic after that, you know, cause I just knew yeah. that no relationship between the quality of the work and the amount of money um and yeah i have a picture of me at 19 years old like basically posing posing shirtless <laughs> with placenta in my hair <laughs> so yeah um but you know that gave me a healthy sense of of, of skepticism of of and, of and of optimism you know just like you never know like you could just be walking down the street and suddenly you get pegged and 20 minutes later, you're, you know, being photographed by one of the world's great living photographers making $100 a minute. Yeah. 
So you just kind of have to get out there and not ask too many. That's that's been my philosophy. It's got it got us it got us to a certain to a certain place um, to to be to have that philosophy. We just go for it, right? I mean, when the Dalai Lama calls you and says, or when uh, when Paul Ekman calls you and says, "Hey, I want you to make a map of human emotion for the Dalai Lama for me," it's not the time to be. It's not the time to question things. It's time to just you got to sometimes you got to leap forward before you know where you're going to go. Yeah, and, and speaking of that. Um, I was watching one of your TED Talks uh, and you sort of describe Stamen itself as like uh, a collection of cartographers and explorers that do a lot of work um, with data that's obscure and difficult to access. Yep. And, and, and speaking of that project of, of working on the Atlas of Human Emotions, that seems like one of the most, like if I were to pick a, a topic or something to map, that seems like one of the most abstract and difficult sort of things that I could come up with. Like, oh yeah, let's map human emotions in, in, in this sort of digital space. Well, and Paul, Paul Ekman told us, you know, the information, the data is all in my book and it kind of was, but it was also kind of spread across many books. So with that one, it wasn't a traditional, like get an API key and access to their GitHub repo and, mm -hmm. you know, this was more about sitting across the table with, um, uh, sitting across the kitchen table with one of the 20th century's great psychologists and making drawings for him and asking him if this is what's in his mind. Um, and that was an incredibly valuable uh, experience just to, to rather than just kind of fire up the latest QGIS plugin or you know open D3 to sit and draw and make, uh, make marks on paper. Um, was was the only way to get the information out of him. So that that was a kind of moment where I realized that we don't just do data visualization. It's we help people communicate with their data, whatever that data is. Um, and even if we have to go get it, we can go do that also. So I've just I've sort of I've tried to open up a space for data visualization that's about more than computers and uh, you know JavaScript libraries. That there's a whole a whole uh, I don't want to say a trick, but that there's a whole process to communicating with data um, and learning about data and figuring out how to put yourself into the position of somebody who doesn't necessarily understand it, or maybe they're even hostile to it. I mean, there's a whole kind of communications angle to this that's not just about programming. Hmm. Yeah, because to me, too, it, it kind of there's there's a lot of ongoing conversation, especially now in this this new age of of like AI and things of like what is art what defines art and i've never really thought about sort of the same sort of like a parallel conversation of, of like what is data and what is visualizing that data and that's sort of that seems like this project falls in that sort of space of like is that data like what defines what defines that you know yeah um yeah and i and i think if you could if you could express that in a single sentence that you could either be right or wrong about, it wouldn't be a very interesting field. <laughs> that's right? like, I think that's true. Like if you could, if you, I mean, the, the, the example I use is like, instead of saying data or data visualization, you say photography or, 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 or movies, you know, like this idea that you can, that you can decide that, that one person could decide what, a, what's a movie and what's not. Right. Like right. There's, there's all different kinds of movies. There's, 20 second YouTube clips, there's Hollywood feature films, there's, you know, Andy Warhol's, you know, 24 hour long video of the Empire State Building. It's like, mm. they're all movies. Um, 
you know, which is not to say that you can't critique them and not to say that you can't, that there shouldn't be, you know, societies for them and that the, the Emmys and the, and the, and the Oscars that they're all bullshit, but it's, but there's definitely like, it's, it, it's a wide ranging medium. There's all kinds of things that you can do with it. And I think that's true of data and data visualization, right? There's, I yeah. mean, what does it mean to say that there's that, that, you know, seismography data is the same thing as, you know, financial data. I don't, is it, I'm, I'm not, I'm not clear that it is. And I would, and I think it's in, interesting too, to think about biases in data because clearly they're always there, but that's not just to say that just because data is not neutral, that it's all not neutral in the same way. Like, hmm. like, a, you know, a data from a, from a, uh, a Gallup poll is going to, is, is of a different quality than the data that's coming in off of, uh, you know, all the seismographs that are buried right. all along where the earthquakes are. It's, I mean, they're, yes, they're both biased and there's power relations inscribed in on both of them, but that doesn't mean they're just the same. Right. So yeah. Some... Interesting. Um, I do, I, I want to wrap back around, um, because also like the definition of what defines like, you know, data and what defines a map. I also want to get back to that too, but tell me a little bit more about like the inception of this project and, and like, so the Atlas of emotion of what we're talking about um, in like thought of by the Dalai Lama and his people communicated with you and like, you know, tell me a little bit about that and how this all came about as well as like, you know, the intended purpose, or at least what you were told was the intended purpose, um, and sort of how you rose to uh, meet that with, with Stamen. Yeah. Um, uh, we were approached by, um, so Paul Ekman is one of the great psychologists of the 20th century, and he, um, he did some really groundbreaking work on the relationship of human emotions to facial expression. Mm. And he proved that a number of them were um, universal, right? So that if, and if you don't, if you, if you're a human being and you're feeling disgust, your face behaves this way. And he did all this research on people in Papua New Guinea who had never been exposed to Westerners and things like that. Yeah. That's interesting of like, cause you often um, sort of tie that to, is it cultural or is it, is it sort of like, innate right and that was an open question until paul ekman came along um, cool. and and there's um there's some research that says that <coughs> that um uh well the, the five the five emotions are fear disgust anger sadness and enjoyment those are the ones that are universal according to his research in them and um he through his daughter who was involved in free Tibet things at UC Berkeley um, managed to connect with the Dalai Lama. Um, and the two of them, the two of those older men are, you know, they're both in their eighties and they just, they just really hit it off and they developed a long friendship. And so they've written a number of books together where they just get together and hang out and talk about emotions. Um, and Paul brings the Western, uh, the Western, uh, mindset and the Dalai Lama brings the Tibetan mindset and the Buddhist mindset and they get together and chat about, what emotions are and how they're dealt with in those two traditions. And so they learn about each other's worldviews. Um, and at, at a certain point, the Dalai Lama said to Paul, look, this is all great, but we need this to be expressed, not just verbally, but we need a, we need a map. We need a map that's not, I, I want to be able to communicate to Western scientists and people who wouldn't necessarily listen to the Dalai Lama. So I need a visual, a visual artifact for that. Um, 
And Paul, who is still old school enough to be reading the New York Times in paper every day, had seen a picture of me in an article about Stamen in the in the New York Times. Um, and so he thought, oh, that's my guy. That's the guy who can make a map of the emotions for the Dalai Lama for me. So uh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, that's that's great. I love the the thought of, you know, like, and that's also a recognition of the the, the power that maps sort of like have in turn, especially in, in in Western society too, of like that to communicate um, things like that, you, you need some sort of power, powerful visual and seemingly authoritative data source, you know, to say like this is this is how things can work. Yeah, it's it seems like a very interesting concept for a map too of like when we, when we think about maps and we think about space you know there's a lot of argument that goes on about like oh you know like is the monopoly game board considered a map right um, and things like that and so I, I when i was using this that was like one of the first things i had thought of too of like seeing the continents that you had um you know placed thoughtfully you know in in this sort of digital space of my screen and seeing like what that you know what what does that imply i'm looking for these these concrete patterns as well especially you know as a trained cartographer and i think um you know hearing the term map i think about that authoritative like here this is here like new york is here it's 100 right there you right. know anger is right there and um you know uh enjoyment is right here <laughs> so I, I found that interesting of like how you might have made those calls or how you sort of like had to navigate in terms of both like a, a linguistic space and apply this like pseudo spatial uh, data to these. Yep. Right. Well, that was the challenge with Paul because he's both very literal and very beauty oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, we'd get, we'd get comments from him that say, you know, well, we can't show those two emotions overlapping one another because emotions don't blend. Hmm. You're either feeling angry or there's a whole scientific thing of like emotion is something that happens very quickly and you don't, there, there's a concept of a mood, which is a very different thing, which is that mm -hmm. you, if you're, if you're in a bad mood, you're going to be more likely to react badly. And if you're in a happy mood, you'll be able to react happily. But, <clears throat> um, you know, he would just say things like, yeah, emotions, we can't show emotions overlapping one another because they don't overlap in the science. And we'd be like, well, fuck, <laughs> you know, what, do you, what are we supposed to do now? You know, so we had to go back to the drawing board literally many, many times throughout the course of that work. Um, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was, and, and, and what was fun about it too was that Paul had never looked at his work this way before. Like we mm -hmm. made we made charts of all the emotions and the one of the things that the central concepts of the atlas is that you have you have emotions um and that those emotions have um like phases or or or, or types which is to say like if you're a little bit angry you know maybe you're annoyed but if you're like super angry you're furious and can those emotions travel across those different ranges and so we've we've built we built profiles of the different kind of shapes that different kinds of emotions have across their intensity levels and paul just never he just never looked at it that way before. Yeah. And I, I loved um, going through those graphs, you know, like, well, first, you know, first starting with that introduction of like, you know, here's how emotions sort of work with human beings or, you know, maybe even beyond human beings. But, um, you know, like there's there's this context, 
there's this trigger and then there's this sort of reaction um, that you have. And it sort of like lays this out like a, uh, like a mathematical equation yep. and then takes you to these continents that are like these, these big uh, moving and like uh, pulsating circles. Um, and then when you click on one, um, it takes you to those graphs that you're talking about of, of like, it, there's like least intense and most intense. This was this was really interesting to me, uh, and I guess I guess let me give a little context here. Is that like in grad school, I did like this quantitative content analysis of over a hundred um, paleoecology papers and looking at all their visualizations, how they use like the visual variables to communicate the data. Did they use it correctly? Which uh, now this sort of like even made me think like, what is correct when it comes to visual variables because because you use them in such an interesting way um you know and they're often thought of like back to that authoritative thing of um like there's orientation uh, that like can help you see trends in a graph but you use them to to not communi communicate data necessarily but like to communicate feeling yeah i mean that was the that was the trick yeah tell me tell me about how like you you came to this decision uh, especially in, in the context of knowing that these graphs and, and things like maps are have that authoritativeness and but these like use that in terms of a sort of playfulness. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things about spiritual leaders that I've, I've found the really enlightened ones is um, they seem to laugh a lot. Um, and it's almost like they're uh, they're in on a joke that the rest of us only dimly perceive. Um, <laughs> And the Dalai Lama is definitely like that. I mean, he showed up. He showed up to the meeting with Mickey Mouse ears on, and was like <laughs> handing out Mickey Mouse ears as like part of the. And we just were howling on the floor, laughing before we, before anything else happened. So, and you know that was deliberate. You know, like it's that's a yeah, that's, great. that's an icebreaker. Um, so, <laughs> if there is one, Mickey Mouse ears is one. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that was if if I experienced any emotion pretty consistently throughout the work, it was the feeling of panic, of just like raw naked fear that we were gonna like put out this data visualization of emotions for the Dalai Lama and we were gonna get just panned in the press and people were gonna be like, what is this garbage? Like these kids have really, uh, you know, swallowed the Kool-Aid and, and they, they, they this, this is not data visualization, this is garbage, you know, um, because it had never been, I'd never seen anything like that before and nobody else had either. Yeah. Um, so that was, I got, I got very comfortable with the feeling of fear and panic um, and trepidation, which is a very specific stage of like fear of something that's in the future. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, 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 I mean, I, in retrospect, I should have known better. Like if the Dalai Lama makes a map of human emotions, people are going to pay attention. Um, and so I, I, maybe I, that fear was unfounded. Um, but you know, it was largely a question of talking, um, of of talking through and iterating and making drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing and saying, is it like this? Is it like this? Is it mm. like this? Um, and that's just often the case with scientists. Um, I found that they they don't they're not visual thinkers. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them are, but but many of them are not. And so it's 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 very refreshing for them to see their work visually. Um, but it also is work for them to get it out, understand it look at it, respond to it. Um, so there were a lot of cycles, basically a lot, of, a lot of cycles on paper with Paul and his daughter Eve, um, and then showing it to the Dalai Lama midway through and, and asking for more money, which was another 
sort of milestone in my life of asking the Dalai <laughs> Lama for money and having him say yes. <laughs> when when you um, that's great. Um, when you picked these these colors and these angular um, peaks for anger, um, these like almost like shark fin, very jagged looking ones for fear. And as one of my favorites, as you described, is like the green mountains of poop uh, yep. for disgust. <laughs> you know, like I when I look at those, I, I am definitely and I guess you shouldn't I shouldn't bring these up without mentioning like the animations that come with them. I feel like this suite of all sorts of these tools that you use for that are often so rigid in, in data viz and um, in that sort of research, the academic research of you use this for quantitative data, this for qualitative. Um, I just have to say that when I look at these, they definitely evoke this emotion like and, and so well that like it's just a, a bravo moment. And how did you, you know, like, you talk about the iterative process, but how else, you know, what sort of things did you use to inform uh, your initial design decisions to even sort of ask that question of Paul and the Dalai Lama? Well, they, they had this idea that, that it would be a map and the whole notion of the project is to en enable people to be calmer like you're supposed to, if you, the, the idea is if you know more about triggers and, and, and emotions and moods that you can kind of introduce a bit of space into your emotional life. Mm. Um, and so that if you, if you, if you know that, you know, when you're angry in this way, you have these four or five options, um, you can, you can sort of choose. You don't necessarily have to be a slave to your emotions. I mean, you can still, you still, you'll still feel them. Nothing will stop you from feeling them. But the idea was to try and give people a sense of what, their emotional landscapes were so that they could better understand them and, and be less caught up in them mm -hmm. um and so then there was there started to be this idea of a of, of calm that like the people would ask me where is calm on a map where is calm on the map and i could never could never find the answer and and, mm -hmm. and eventually we broke it out so that the project wasn't a map but it was an atlas that was a, a thing that we came to is that it was because if you if you've got a map, you know, sort of, and it's the only the one map, then all the decisions, all the pressure is on that one map. Whereas if you've got an atlas, you can show different aspects to things in the different pages, and it sort of conceptually freed us up to, to kind of have this this not like a not a map with calm on it, but a map that you would use in order to better understand your emotions, and that that would kind of indirectly lead you to calm. So that that took some doing. Um, that took some figuring to, to 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 get away from this idea that there is a place where you see calm on a map, and more that calm is like um, it's like knowing your way around your neighborhood. You know, if you look at the maps enough, you know, then you, just, then you don't need the maps anymore. So that turned into that kind of that kind of concept. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense too. Is like you know, with the purpose to to navigate your emotions, like and sort of injecting that into this visualization. I thought the concept was, you know, um, it's amazing to me. Um, so I, I cool. thoroughly, Thanks, yeah, what was my, what my enjoyment um, <laughs> of experience this, I'm going to use the Atlas here. Um, some sensory oh, pleasure. Some ones in there. <laughs> I, yeah, your favorite one. Uh, I think you mentioned in another talk was Schadenfreude or something. Yeah, yeah, it's enjoyment in other people's pain. Yeah. <laughs> what, 
one of my favorite, I guess, metaphors, like visual metaphors in this is, is sort of the use of like color value and brightness behind. And, you know, as you go into this introduction and you begin, like the, the back of the screen is dark, you know, and as you sort of learn a little bit more about, you know, the awareness and, um, the you know the experience and as you're going through these like little tutorials that background is is going further and further becoming brighter and more illuminated and like to me that that is amazing like meta like visualization thing of what's happening to the user this whole time as you're learning about this and then the rest of the experience is within that light um i just i loved that yeah, thank you. Um, we, I think uh, the field is waking up to the idea that it's about, it's not just about clarity, right? It's about, it's about experience also, and it's about emotion, and it's about finding ways for people to receive your message in a way that, or, or, or make their own message, but it's just this idea that there's a correct way of doing this um, has not been my, has not, has not been my experience. Yeah. Right. It's it's about journeys and it's about conversations and it's about argument more than it is about the sort of uh, even-handed depiction of neutral facts to an unbiased audience. Yeah, definitely. And, and like it goes into even just what this the atlas itself says is that like everyone who's going to be consuming this atlas has different environmental contexts. You know, like emotional things and and in different. Um, you know, different moods that are influencing how they even intake this in. But I think uh, a lot of this was was just so enlightening to to read. Um, and I, I, f I found a lot of meaning in that action section, you know, like the kind of bringing it all together in sort of like, you know, why did I act in this way? You know, so many times that I've, I found myself responding to certain situations in a way. I'm like, why did I do that? And And knowing this sort of like, this broken down mathematical equation of, you know, there's things that's happened to you. There's things that happen, you know, that set, set you up for another trigger and influence your outcome. Um, I'm curious as to how, you know, like this sort of lived up, I guess, what you, what did you take away from not only the, the design and, and data viz experience, but also just the content of, of what you're, you're putting in there? Um, I mean, one thing I learned was that there's different kinds of anger, right? And that, and that, you know, there's, there's annoyance, which is a kind of, you know, oh man, I can't find my toothbrush. But then, then there's exasperation, which is like, I can't find my toothbrush again. And there's this, and there's, and that, they're kind of the, that exasperation can be quite mellow or it could be quite intense. Um, whereas fury another one of the stages of, of anger is is always very intense you're never just a little furious right so mm -hmm. there's there's kind of different different categories within anger which is a, a emotion that i'm sadly a little too familiar with um mm -hmm. but that and and just very much that there's that there's choices that you can make and that emotions if you if you look at them you can you can sort of check in with yourself and see what kind of anger you're experiencing or what kind of sadness and yeah the sort of that 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 link between like trigger emotion and action as a as a cycle that can be intervened in very specifically is 
was earth shattering for me or just just you know just that you have you have control over you can't control what you feel but you can control what you do mm -hmm. and and that that separation of those two things was really kind of mind mind bending yeah and if you can take that that brief moment to sort of evaluate yep. the rest of the equation definitely allows you to sort of change instead of like this plus this equals this you almost get to change that operator of equals to like could equal all yeah, of these right. things that's and exactly which ones right. do i choose yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so that was very much the point is just to be able to, to to increase literacy in that. It's like just because I think maybe one of the concepts that's fun to think about is that I think a lot of times in data visualization, we place a really high priority on somebody being able to understand instantly the thing that we want them to understand. Um, and that's fine. Um, but I think also um, if we can open up the kind of space inside data visualization that, you know, like a great novel <clears throat> uh, opens up or a, or a concert or a song, <clears throat> excuse me, that you might want to hear many times and develop a sort of set of relationships with. I think that that's a really, that could be really good. Um, yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, just, I mean, if, if you think about the Atlas of Emotion, you're supposed to understand it when you look at it. But it's also a tool that to kind of come back to over and over as as you experience different kinds of emotions, mm. um, and this I think this idea that that all that maps that maps are supposed to give you every answer right away um, does the creative potential of the medium a disservice. I think that mm. there's a yeah you know again like I, I I grew up in New York City and I, I and I know the subway there very well um, from both reading the maps but then also by going on those journeys. <clears throat> and and I think there's a there's a concept of kind of literacy that comes from repeat viewing and action in the world um, that is not often taught in data is 101. How how do you think that this sort of uh, the atlas itself um, lived up to your expectations of you know what you thought it might be? Well, it went through three different iterations um, and Nicolette deserves a huge amount of credit for taking the last one and, and making it making it real and working with them. Um, you know, in, in, the, in, in some sense, this was this was Paul Ekman's life work, you know, it's like his, it was a summation of 60 years of research into emotions. Um, so I think it did that quite well. Um, and kind of we, what we, I'm very proud of is that we synthesized a really wacky set of scientific concepts <clears throat> and turned them into something, you know, that could get into the, into the New York Times. So the, the, the idea of, of, of approaching a very abstract problem space and emerging with something that has some life to it is, you know, you could have, I think the scientists could have, I think there's a thing that happens in scientific data visualization where if anybody could potentially misconstrue a certain kind of visualization, it gets thrown out in the name of scientific accuracy. Um, and I think what you what you sort of lose there is any sense of narrative or any sense of engagement or every sense of any sense of kind of delight um, and and opening up scientific data visualization to aspirational or, or wisdom oriented uh, activities is something that I think the project did a pretty good job of um, mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, 
it's not just about, again, it's not just about latitude and longitude data, but it can be about aspirational higher order concepts and finding ways to express those using the language of mapping and cartography. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think everyone, you know, who worked on this did an awesome job and, you know, made me rethink, you know, as a quote unquote, classically trained cartographer of someone, you know, yeah. with a cartographic education of like, what does it mean to create a map? And what does it mean like to use a map and the different purposes of map? I'm just, I was left with so many questions, good questions in terms of like, you know, how I move forward in, in pieces that I make. And as well as like, as a human being with my own emotions too. And my brother and I, we often share uh, some very good con conversations about this stuff. So I'm definitely going to send this to him and say, Hey, page through this, tell me what you think, you know, like, how does this make you feel? And what do you think about it? This is, this is some amazing stuff. So. Cool. Thanks Ross. Um, appreciate being the chance of being able to talk about it. Yeah. And thank you so much for, for talking with me and, and sharing more uh, insight into it. Thank you for listening to Pollinate. And thanks to Eric for our conversation today. Music for Pollinate was created by Julian Russell. You can read more about the Atlas of Emotions on Stamen's website at stamen.com and explore the Atlas itself at atlasofemotions.org. For a summary and full transcript of today's conversation, check out the blog post at stamen.com slash blog.